My response is going to be brief, I hope. Uh, I'm going to make some sense, also, I hope. Uh, and I'm going to start with Hatim, just because I got Hatim and Raya's papers first. Uh, so I'm going to go by the order I got the papers. Um, so I will begin first by referring to a piece I wrote about the Arab uprising. But it was about Arab uprising and women. But you can remove the word women and add cultural producers, artists, you know, rappers, or whatever. Um, and uh, the piece was called, It's Not Like Your Daughter or Mine, Spectacles of Bad Women from the Arab Spring. Uh, I start that piece by pointing out that most discussions of uh, the Arab uprising uh, revolve around two sometimes competing but often overlapping narratives. One is a celebratory narrative that points out the important role Arab women or youth or the people uh, played in these upheavals as organizers and participants, how their participation cut across lines of class generation and how this involvement undermined social taboos and cleared a new space for a new generation of activists. This narrative is part of a larger epistemological project that has dominated Middle East studies in the past two decades, a project that seeks to counter Orientalist stereotypes of Arab and Muslim women or Arab Muslim people, persons, as passive victims by emphasizing their agency and, the political, and their political participation. It is a testimony, I think, to the hegemony of this narrative that it has spread beyond scholars of the Middle East. I'll give an example. Naomi Wolf, who is not a Middle Eastern scholar, in an article about the Arab uprisings, was effusive about the so-called awakened women whose fight for freedom could not be stopped. Uh, Tawakkul Karaman, the, Yeme the Yemeni political activist who received the Nobel Peace Award in 2011 and was dubbed the mother of the revolution, is the official heroine of the story. Uh, I would say the Kurdish women fighters defending Kobani against the Islamic State, whose pictures were circulating in the press and on social media, emerged as the most visible icons of this narrative in 1914. The other narrative is a, pes is a pessimistic one. Uh, that emerged after the Arab uprising uh, completed its first year. This is a skeptical narrative. It points out that despite women or activists, young people participation in these revolutions, they're not really not empowered by this, excuse me, by this participation, and they are in fact risking losing some, especially for women, some of the hard-won rights that they snatched from the toppled autocrats. Um, so I was thinking about that, what I wrote when I uh, read Hatem's remarks, and I heard them again here, about the historicity, the his, how do you say that? Historicity. Wait, historicity, okay, thank you, of the Arab uprising. And uh, so it reminded me of what, of what I wrote, uh, that are we late or are we too late or too early talking about the Arab uprising? Did they happen? Uh, or because they were defeated and followed by oppression and civil wars and ISIS? Were they always really an Arab Arctic, you know, winter or a harbinger of an Arab apocalypse? Did they reflect the agency and will of the people or were they conspiracies that use the people as pawns? 
While this skepticism or cynicism acquired more currency in the light of the perceived defeat of the Arab Springs or the Arab uprisings, it was always there from the beginning. Uh, our problem as academics, I think, I mean, it was there in the popular discourse, but also in academia. And I think it points to our problem we have uh, as academics in that we often, to understand something like the, Ara the uh, Arab uprising, we're often too eager to give an explanation, to fit the events into uh, a comfortable theoretical frame that we have. And when they don't fit, we kind of throw a tantrum. That's when we become cynical and say, oh, it didn't work, and take our ball and go home. So I like your metaphor about the mall, uh, you know, via Marx, where you say we ought, we ought to instead uh, ask where the borrowing is currently happening and look for tactics may, that may not be transparent, that resistance and the uprising are still happening. Um, there are other tact uh, tactics that might not be captured by censors. I think if we assume that people always have agency, as Raya suggested, that we do, then we can't spend our time looking for manifestations and effects of such agency. I suggest, for instance, that, I mean, this is gonna sound really old fashioned, but the Palestinian concept of sumud, that's what I started thinking about, where, which means steadfastness. Sumud, Arabic word, means steadfastness. Uh, I feel it's like underappreciated and under-theorized concept uh, often drowned, drowned by spectacles of resistance such as rocket launching or suicide bombings. So I would say, building just, you know, using that example, that uh, these alternative uh, ways, um, they don't need even to be underground. They can be daily and pervasive and ordinary. And that's why they become invisible for many of us. So it doesn't even need to be, become you know, underground. I think, as I said, the sumud, the steadfastness, the fact that you can resist by just continuing to live, you know, is important. Third point, I thought it was really interesting, and I would have really loved examples. I told you that in the hallway, and I was waiting for an example desperately, and he didn't give me one. So please, I want an example. The same goes to you, Raya. I would like specific examples of artists that you feel are being packaged or, you know, uh, um, what do you say, uh, co-opted by neoliberal discourse. So maybe one, one thing you can do in the discussion is give more of those kind of examples. Raya's paper, um, I have several questions. Um, Raya talks about neoliberal orientalism and the discourses of resistance it employs and how these depoliticize Arab artists and musicians and their work while celebrating what seems like exciting political content or voice. I think this is an important point. But I would ask, does this only relate to the Arab Springs? I mean, I remember at some point, uh, again, I refer something I did, I wrote about. 
because that's what I know, uh, where uh, you take the, um, I looked at uh, Nawal Sadawi's work, right, which got uh, translated into English and what happened to it in the process of the translation, what was left out. So one of the things that was left out is her socialist politics. That was edited out of her, the, the hidden face of Eve in the, in the American, British and American translations. Uh, so that's an example of, of this kind of, you know, politics co-option that it really happened before the Arab uprising. It's a, it's a question, it's just a continuation of it. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. And um, um, so then my question to you is, to what extent is this depoliticization new and is in need of, a new, of new terms, okay? Uh, I know we are under pressure in academia always to come up with new terms to, in order to justify our existence. But here's an example where I feel, I mean, do we really need new terms to describe this co-option? And maybe we do. I just want to hear about more. What's so special about this? Um, another point relating to terms and frameworks. Uh, you, Raya, mentions uh, the orientalization of class. I think you, you mentioned it here and in the paper. Uh, and she rightly reminds us that neoliberal orientalism corresponds to neoliberal power. And as such, it cannot be confined to a nebulous zone like the West as encounters an equally nebulous East, right? Then I ask, in what sense is orientalism a useful frame for understanding this? Why can't we talk about class directly, not via class mediated by Orientalism. Doesn't the use of the term Orientalism continue to remove Arab people from the center of the debate? Raya continues that the recognition of the Orientalization of class is important for developing political discourse and political strategy in the, re in the region, where the recognition of colonialism and Orientalism is widespread and engage, but the fights against gentrification, privatization, other elite stratifications of society are underdeveloped. I love this point. I agree totally. But then again, I will ask, who is responsible for this underdevelopment? I think it's us, academics, producers of knowledge. How much have we contributed to it by privileging Orientalism as a frame of analysis? If we are talking about the politics of knowledge production, how much knowledge have we produced about Orientalism, neo-Orientalism, and neoliberal Orientalism, etc., compared to knowledge centered on class, gender, sexuality in the Arab world? Okay, uh, okay, resistance and agency, that's a really thorny topic, but here's my question. Can't we, and I really ask it in sincerity, can, maybe I'm not theoretical enough, but can't we, uh, can't we critique the co-option co of resistance without throwing resistance out of the window? You know, I mean, I feel like can't, I mean, it's a question for, I think, all of us. Uh, I, I, I don't see, I can't see when resistance is being co-opted, when certain people are promoted over others, but where the, def the very definition of resistance is being exclusive and blind us to other forms. But do we have to actually part with the concept of resistance, you know, as 
important for eman emancipatory projects, which I happen to still believe in. You know, so uh, according um, my last comments uh, about uh, Professor Crady's uh, uh, talk, I mean, I really, I mean, I must admit, I started reading some of his other stuff, I was telling you, and I got really excited about it because I feel like uh, the idea of doing Arab cultural studies, which I feel his, he's contributing to, so as you two, is very exciting to me. And I think it will make the field, Middle East studies field, make, make, it's gonna make going to that conference, right, in November, right, Nathaniel, exciting, instead of hearing the same thing. We're gonna be hearing something new. Um, and I, again, I, uh, as, as uh, regarding what the talk today, I was, again, paying attention to the, uh, point about uh, the question, revolutionary art achieving global fame and what happens to it. And again, I would say there is, this is not unprecedented, this circulation of cultural products from the Arab world being translated, being marketed in the West, uh, has been going on for decades. And I think we have now um, an archive to see what happens to these works and uh, how they acquire different meaning in a different context. Thank you. <laughs>